You're listening to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. Today I sit down with Robin Ray. Robin and her co-founder Mike started Modern Dog in 1987. Their business was built around handmade work and a design portfolio that Robin herself says wasn't very good at the time. So we'll learn how Robin and her partner landed K2 as one of their first clients, maybe by accident, and hear about what Robin's up to today, including her career teaching design. You can get all of today's show notes on our website at obsessedshow.com. And at Twitter, we are at Obsessed Show, and I'm at Josh Miles. And while you're at it, be sure to check out iTunes. You can give us a rating and subscribe there. You'll be a great help to others who are looking to find shows like ours. So without further ado, please welcome Robin Ray. Okay, guys, today I am very excited to have with me Robin Ray from Modern Dog. Robin, thank you so much for joining us on Obsessed with Design. Thanks for having me. Now, Robin, you and I had the uh, the pleasure of meeting when we had you out here in uh, Indianapolis for an AdFed uh, evening event, I think, or maybe a lunch event. Either way, you were a guest speaker, and it was great to hear some of your stories. So I'm excited to uh, have you unpack some of these for our audience today. Sounds great. Very cool. So one of my favorite stories to start people out with is... Tell me a little bit about your origin story as a designer and how you got started and understand, uh, you know, Modern Dog was founded in 1987. So I'm kind of curious how you got to that point and kind of where you are today. Okay. Well, I, I went to college uh, about 90 miles north of Seattle, really close to the Canadian border. And I was actually studying to become a teacher but my sophomore year, I met my, my future business partner, and I got turned on to design. I actually went to a school that didn't have a very good design program at that time, so I have more of an art degree. Um, so when we left college, we both tried getting a job. It was never our intention to start a design company straight out of school. Uh, neither one of us could find a job, and so we pulled out a business license, I think, three weeks after graduation. Wow. And having no idea what we were doing and actually thinking it would only be a temporary thing and that at some point we would go work for somebody else. Part, one of the reasons why we did it is like just from sheer frustration. You know, 1987 was kind of a, a downturn in the economy. Yeah. Um, and there weren't a lot of jobs. And, you know, and, and to be very frank with you, our, our work looked terrible. I mean, we didn't. <laughs> we had really bad work and so it was we were competing against um you know other people right out of school that had much better looking portfolios and so so yeah that's kind of a little bit about why I mean I guess it was just a, a company by default because we neither one of us could get a job um so the first three or four years were very lean and then we got some really big lucky breaks mm -hmm. um and then w one of those big breaks was with k2 snowboards and I always, looking back, you know, in the past 29 years, I can say that it was K2 that really allowed us to actually become a company. So we were with, we started working with them in 1989. Very cool. And, you know, some of the clients that you've seen along the way between uh, K2, obviously, and some of the other ones with the, the likes of Coca-Cola or the New York Times or 
uh, Warner Brothers, and you've you've had the opportunity to work with some really impressive brands. So, tell us about how that K two relationship got started. Well, again, it's another. I love this story because I think a lot of people think that somehow. I mean, I it, it was really just one of those things where it was just a happy accident. I was at a party. And I met this guy who was telling me about this new product K2 was making. And um, I thought he said, I thought he said skateboards or surfboards. I didn't know what a snowboard was. I'd never heard of a snowboard. And uh, Monday morning rolled around and there was myself, my business partner, Mike, and another guy at the time who was working with us. And uh, I was telling them about it. And they said, oh, we'll get on the phone and call him and see if we can do some work. And I knew that if I just called and, um, you know, just did a cold call, I'd probably get hung up on. So I called and the woman who answered, I told her that I had met this guy, Brent Turner, and he told me to call, which he didn't do. (laughs) (laughs) And she patched me through to this other guy who answered the phone and he said, oh, yeah, you know, we've been waiting for your phone call. We have some work here for you. And I didn't, you know, I just sort of played along with it. And... I, years later, I learned that the morning that I made that phone call, they were expecting a phone call from another design firm. And oh, I, didn't, I didn't learn this for like two or three years. And, and th- at this point, we were well into our relationship with K2. And I always thought it might have been this company called Studio MD because people used to confuse us, uh, Studio MD and Modern Dog. So I always joke around with those guys, Glenn Mitsui and Jesse Dekilo. I used to always say, hey, you know, and they're always like, hey, where's our kickback? But, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it was, you know, and then, of course, when they saw our work, um, we at that time in 1989, I don't think we even had any full color work in our portfolio. The only thing we really had were these seed packets. We were designing seed packets for this little company. And... The guy did the, you know, the art director at the time, he did the worst thing that anybody, anyone could do when they're looking at your work. And he, he like zipped up the portfolio, which were, our portfolios back then were big because mm-hmm. this was before computers. And uh, he said, you know, if I'd seen your work, I would have never called you in. And there wow. was this really uncomfortable silence. And I was by myself. So my, so the two guys in my office, which were completely lame, they made me go and try to get the work, you know, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I just, I told him, I said, you know, I, I know the work isn't up to what you're, we're expecting, but if you just give us this opportunity, I promise I'll never bug you again. And so he kind of said, he kind of changed his commitment and he said, look, I'm only going to hire you for a few ideas. And he changed the purchase order and, and, um, you know, I went back to the studio and I, for the next three days, we just worked and worked and worked. And I think we did. We, we did over a hundred small ideas that were maybe eight inches. This is all by hand. Oh yeah. And then we did, I think 17 full size mock-ups with, you know, the combination of copiers and doing things by hand. And then when I went back, he did that thing again where he like put me in a room and I put out the hundred ideas. And of course there were like 99 bad ones and one good idea. But I, you know, <laughs> back then I thought volume would somehow impress him. He got really quiet. And so then I brought out the 17 big ones and he just, he came back with like some other people that he worked with. And he just said, you guys are like totally nuts to have done this in three days. 
And that was, we didn't work like that. You know, we didn't continue to show like a hundred ideas. It was kind of dumb. I guess we were just nervous, but um, (laughs) we ended up, you know, working with them for 10 and a half years and we did everything from, you know, packaging. That's also when we started writing advertising copy, Mm -hmm. uh, art directing photo shoots, you know, brochures, uh, designing product, of course, snowboards. Um, And then we also did stuff for K2 Japan. Um, That was also another big part of our business for several years. So, and we, and then we, you know, occasionally did kids skis and like inline skates. So, I mean, they had their fingers in a lot of different, you know, products. And so we kind of, we were there at the right time. And so, um, you guys just have a great aesthetic to, to so much of your work and, you know, you've, you've done everything from these posters and cool illustrative hand-drawn kind of things. And that I think kind of reflect the, the pre-computer time that you were learning in, but also, um, you know, you also do some really great corporate identity work and branding and, and as you said, art directing photo shoots. And so where has, where do you feel like modern dog kind of got their, their stride as a company, like which of those swim lanes or was it the fact that you were doing a little bit of everything that was, that was so great? You know, I think we, we were doing, I mean, we've even done animation for Showtime. We've done, um, you know, websites, of course, a little bit of UX design, but, uh, I guess, you know, part of it, I have to say that a lot of like that fearless attitude came from my business partner. And sometimes it got us into a lot of trouble. Like we got into projects where (laughs) we really were just way over our head, but more often than not, it was a really healthy um, attitude. He was just a fearless person where I was be in the background saying, I don't think we can do that. He'd go, of course we can. <laughs> so I would try to be the voice of reason. And he was just, he is a very optimistic person and, and really fear. He's a fearless designer. And so we, you know, I, we were in some ways, I, I, li- I love telling my students this because I teach and, and I, and um, a lot of them can't believe this, but I never, and neither did my partner. We never took a software class. And to this day, um, we just sort of, and I, and I've never taken a class to the, to this day, but we just kind of learned off the cuff. I mean, if you were there in the late eighties and early nineties mm-hmm. and you were watching the transition from doing everything by hand and doing pay steps and mechanicals, which I still love, you know, I still have my waxer because I still build things by hands, but by, by my hands, but, uh, it was a very, uh, interesting time to be a designer because the technology was changing so quickly. And I think our first computer, we had to take a loan out and I think it was $12,000 and, and 5,000 of it was just for the monitor. Wow. And so people think we had to take a loan and it took years to pay that stupid thing off. Yeah, but exactly, you know, within six months or a year, there was something better, faster, cheaper. And it was like that. They're like, I don't know the first seven or eight years of Macintosh. It was just so crazy. And I hated actually all that, buying all that equipment. <laughs> so we, I think, you know, when we had that one, the first computer that ended up costing us 12 grand because we had to finance it, um, we didn't, there was only one computer in the office for like four people. Uh, but my partner, you know, he just kind of dove right into it. He became, um, he, in the early 90s, he was really well known for, uh, for his work in Photoshop was doing a lot of 3D work uh, before a lot of other people were kind of diving into that. 
he was just sort of figuring things out. And I remember we were, I can't remember the name of this uh, conference we were at, but it was something to do with technology. It was still when some people were still on floppies, but we were at the World Trade Center and he was talking about, it was some sort of design conference and he was doing um, demos in Photoshop. And so I just remember those early days of the computer. And I think a lot of the work that was coming out what looked really bad because people didn't know what they were doing and yeah. a lot of Photoshop filters and a lot of like, you know, really and like funny mistakes, but there was also some good stuff coming out also. But, um, I think maybe, you know, my initial hesitation for embracing the technology was just how ugly everything looked. At the, um, mm-hmm. and we really liked seeing handwork. Um, and so even to this day, I, you know, of course I'm completely, you know, embracing Illustrator and InDesign, I can't live without them, but I still, and my partner still incorporates a lot of handwork into the design. Yeah, very cool. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed about um, your story when you were here in town was kind of seeing all of the little little products or promotional things that you guys have put together, everything from the, the little, you know, magnets and stickers that are for sale in, in stores, or even your greeting cards, or kind of you know, making projects out of things that aren't necessarily like traditional client projects. So can you talk a little bit about that side of it? I think you might be uh, talking about the work we do with Blue Q. So Mm -hmm. like the cat butt magnets and stuff like that. Yeah. Mitch has been a client of ours since 94 and we still, I don't know how many products we've got through him, but he also, you know, he works with a lot of other people too. And it was really the relationship between Mitch and Mike, Mike's sense of humor. Um, and he, you know, we had some hits from that and some very unexpected hits. I think naked men with oven mitts was definitely a very (laughs) (laughs) top seller. Well, it was a product that I personally did not think was going to sell. Um, and it sold really well. And then we ended up doing naked men with balls. So if people don't, I know your listeners don't know what this is, but you can Google it. <laughs> well, be careful. <laughs> be careful if you Google it. But uh, no, so we, a lot of that work, I mean, I think we also did, you know, promotions with K2 that were things like uh, Jiffy Pop. Um, that was an invite to some sort of snowboard, uh, either uh, a meeting or something for their reps. But we did, we've always sort of um, done kind of fun, I don't want to say jokey, but lighthearted promotional stuff. So one of the other stories that I'd, I'd love for you to tell if you're, if you're in the mood to talk about this was, um, you know, kind of the, the surprise of seeing what appeared to be your work in Target and kind of how that, how that took place and, and what you did about it. Yeah. So I guess, um, uh, yeah, no, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any issue talking about it, but uh, I think probably a lot of people are probably curious about it. But yeah, so in 2011, I was on my way to an AIGA event. I was at the airport and I got a, a text from a guy who used to work for me, who now works for another firm in Seattle. And um, he asked if we had sold our dogs, which he, what he was referring to was um, we have just we had a book that came out on our poster work and mm-hmm. the end pages had were was like a wallpaper of dog drawings. And um I said no. And I think at first when he first contacted me, I was thinking, okay, it probably looks like our work, but 
you know, I, I, I doubt if it is, but he, he said, well, you know, did you sell it to Disney? No, I didn't. And I said, show me what you're talking about. And so right before the plane took off, like literally within like a few minutes of having to shut my phone down, I get this, you know, I get a, a message and I'm zooming in on it and it's a t-shirt and I see my dog, my best friend's dog. I see my client's dogs. I see a bunch of other dogs I recognize from our book. And I thought, well, and even at that point, I thought, I bet you it's just like a, a few of them. There's no way all, you know, it turned out to be 26. I just thought, no way could it be all 26. And so when I landed, was I going to Tulsa, Oklahoma? Yeah. When I landed, I immediately just ordered the shirts off Target. So they were, mm. it was a Disney product that was being sold through Target. And by the time I got back, so like a few days later, I got back to Seattle. The, the shirts were in my studio. As soon as we opened it up, it was just, I think our jaws just dropped. We were completely shocked that, you know, all what appeared to be 26, we could, we picked them out like within a few minutes. And so I think when that, you know, stuff like that's happened before, but never on this scale. Mm -hmm. So we'd never seen our work lifted, um, allegedly lifted. Sure. And, you know, so we, we did, we hired an attorney who, uh, you know, we tried approaching Target. So like when something like this happens, you never want to think like, oh, we're going to sue you. I mean, I are, we wanted them, them to actually pull the shirts and to, and then to have a discussion with us about what was going on. So, yeah, you know, looking back on it, Target's attorneys didn't want to talk to our attorney. And we totally kind of, after we kind of got into it, we sort of realized why they didn't want to talk to us. And so that began about a two and a half year ordeal of trying to uh, correct, correct a wrong. And, you know, we eventually settled. And so I'm not allowed to talk about what happened in that settlement, but there mm -hmm. was a lot, I certainly learned a lot about copyright law and there were two sort of major victories that we got out of this, which was one is that we, we won our summary judgment. And so one of the, when you're in a lawsuit like this, the defense will just sort of throw everything, all different kinds of things at you. And when I look back on it, I truly believe that there was no incentive for the case to be over because I believe that the, the law firm that was involved um, representing the defendants just didn't have a reason to end it. <laughs> yes. So, our, you know, and so that's a very difficult place for a small company to be in. And it was nerve wracking um, and it was scary at times. And I think once my partner and I realized, because a couple of times the attorneys representing the defendants had said to us, well, if you lose, we're going to come after you for attorney's fees. And we knew, we knew where that, we had seen one of the bills and it was like, well, well into the six figures. And so we knew oh, that wow. was gonna, we knew it was going to bankrupt us. Yeah. And of course it was like a threat meant, meant to scare us. And it, mm -hmm. and it did. But I think once my partner and I, cause we sat down, we said, do we, you know, once you're in a, uh, a federal case like this, you can't just pull out. You can't go, oops, mm -hmm. made a mistake. <laughs> just kidding. Sorry. Uh, yeah, I don't, don't really want to go after you guys anymore. But you know, they were claiming that it was a coincidence. They claimed all different kinds of things. Um, but there were three companies involved, Disney target and another company called Jaya. So all of this is public record. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, they, they fought us off and they, and I think what I think was most shocking to us is that 
Disney and Target stood by and sort of allowed this to kind of unfold without using their power to stop it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I realized we were probably just a, a fly on the elephant's back, but this happens to a lot of small companies. And I'm, I'm proud of my company for fighting back. And I think, you know, once my partner and I discussed, like, we either, we either stick this out or we're going to go bankrupt. Like there was no, we only had two choices. So the choice is like, we give up right now. We know this is going to take years. And they, the first attorney that we worked with said, oh, he thought it would be over within a few months. And by the time we got rid of that guy, we got the guy that we ended up um, seeing us through to the end. He was like, no, he's realistically, this is going to take a few years. And I think when I heard that, I think had I known that, you know, I think it's, it's just very hard to predict what we would have done. But like it was yeah. sort of shocking to know that there was that the process was going to basically just pull this thing out. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm proud of, I'm proud that we stood up to them and, you know, we did, um, the two major victories we got, one was the summary judgment where they were saying that our, they were trying to build a case that the, our illustrations were, um, part of the natural world. And so therefore they were deserving of only thin copyright protection. So thin, uh, broad. Okay, sure. And um, we were basically saying, no, our our work has is stylized and it has it's got emotion in it. So like they were the mm -hmm. first people, the defendants were the first time I ever heard my company described as technical. They were trying to say that the illustrations were technical illustrations of dogs. So, um, <laughs> which, so if you drew it exactly like the dog looked in a photograph, then it's yeah, probably easier for them yeah. to argue that if it weren't stylized. Exactly. So. I mean, they're, they're kind of just grasping for whatever they can at this point. And sure. so they just kept throwing those different kinds of things at us. Luckily, we won that. And the judge in our case said that, no, the dogs had, were stylized. And so we were really we really ended up really liking the judge in our case. He's a, he's a federal court judge who deals with a lot of copyright cases. And um, I was initially, you know, kind of nervous of, about him because he was you know, approaching 80 and he was appointed by Reagan, but he actually turned out to be like a very, I mean, he's just very fair. And he, mm -hmm. and I thought is, you know, cause a couple of times the defendant's attorneys described our dog drawings as scribbles, like very demeaning, but sure. to them, it looked like just a few lines. And my argument to that would be, well, Mickey Mouse is like three circles and that's protected. Right. So, I mean, we had fun with them. Sometimes it was actually kind of fun to banter back with that. <laughs> I, I sort of, <laughs> you know, I mean, in, in some respect, it was uh, interesting, fun, nerve wracking. You know, when it was all said and done, I felt you know, we couldn't find anywhere where Disney had ever lost a, a visual copyright case anywhere. Hmm. So most copyright cases are fought that deal with visuals are either fought in New York or Los Angeles. Um, and so they're, they're, they're hard to find where Disney actually loses. We, could, we found some where Target had lost. Mm -hmm. but finding finding when when disney loses is like it's like a needle in a haystack i'm sure that they're out there but we just had a hard time finding them and right. then the other big the other kind of big thing that we got is when everything and i hope i'm going to describe this correctly but at the end we were able to get the the copyright of the dogs was assigned back to my company so part of the terms of our settling was that 
the, the, there couldn't be any question about these dogs and who owned them. And so that copyright came back to my company. And, cool. and, and before this, we had licensed, sorry, we talked a little bit about Blue Q earlier. Mm -hmm. We had licensed the dogs to Blue Q and they were on a messenger bag. And so we were, we had a limited licensing agreement with them and uh, we needed to have, we needed to own the dogs. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be something that, you know, Disney or Target could ever use or release again. And so we got, we got the assignment back to the company and we also won the summary judgment. So those two things I feel really good about. Very cool. I think that's a, you know, like you said, it's, it's, we'd all like to think that you were such a fly on the elephant that nobody high up knew what was going on, but it's either way, it's a cool story of the little guy winning out and, you know, proving that you're, you were right. And kind of just, you know, well, well, as you know, you, we had a lot of help from the design community. Yeah. Absolutely. So that, you know, that enabled us to hire, we hired a PhD in mathematics who had his PhD from Stanford, who was able to calculate the odds because, <laughs> you know, at first they were saying, oh, it's a coincidence, you know, the dogs right. exactly match. But the dogs were all drawn in exactly looking the opposite direction. So all 26 mm -hmm. were, re were reversed, were flipped. And so we yep. hired an, uh, a mathematician to come up with the odds of that happening. Because part, part of it is we couldn't prove access uh -huh. because we didn't have... You know, we didn't have proof that the designer went and bought our book or yeah. downloaded images. And so to counter that, we had to hire we had to hire people that would help prove that this was not a coincidence. That's very cool. Well, maybe shifting gears a little bit. Where where do you go today for inspiration? What what kind of gets your creative juices going? I you know, I, I get People ask that question a lot, and I would just say, and it's kind of lame to say this, but everything. I don't know where to start with that because I would just say my life. And, you know, I'm around creative people. My husband's a musician, and he's also a videographer, and he's also a really good designer. Hmm. I'm my business partner, um, you know, I guess my best friend who lives next door to me um, is also a musician. So I'm around a lot of creative people. And, I don't go looking for it. It's just there. Um, my garden, I have a great garden. Uh, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if I really answered that. <laughs> I'm not sure. Do you I feel, guess, how would you answer that? I, I know. I think similarly, I think um, for me when I'm doing things besides trying to focus and make something is when I, I feel more freed up to think about it. So if I'm driving in my car or taking a walk or, shower or something when it, when I'm disconnected is when I tend to be most open to new ideas, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like I'm constantly filing ideas in my head. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you sort of come back to it and go, Oh yeah, that, that works here. You know, kind of remembering how to, how to use that thing that you saw. So I would imagine there's a lot of people, especially um, coming up through the poster design world who would list you as one of their design heroes. I'm curious who were some of your design heroes as you were getting started or maybe people that you look at today that you really admire. Yeah. You know, I, I knew these kind of questions were going to come up. I should have prepared, <laughs> but there's just, you know, I, I'm influenced by some, there's almost, 
there's almost nothing that I'm not influenced by. And especially regarding poster artists, there's so many poster artists I love. I love the Cuban work. I love uh, like Bach. I have a lot of it. Actually, mm-hmm. you can see a Puerto yeah. Rican poster, um, a screen printed poster I picked up when I was in San Juan back in the 90s. Uh, there's, you know, and I love Sister Corita Kent. I mean, I would say that she had maybe a big impact on me when I was in my, you know, developing myself as a designer in my early 20s when I discovered who she was. And mm-hmm. um, and now she's winning the the AIGA design medal, which is so cool. Um, but I mean, I, I liked her work a lot. And, you know, of course, Paula Scher, you know, a lot of the Polish poster artists, mm-hmm. there's a, a guy, uh, it's Michel Bouvet in France, who I met in Taiwan when we were judging a, a Taiwanese poster show. Um, and I was shocked. It was him. I was like, Oh my God, it's that guy. <laughs> it's kind of like, so I act kind of like, I have like a, you know, I start to turn into the groupie when I meet my poster heroes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just so much that I love, you know, and of course, locally Seattle's got some amazing talent. I don't know if you know, Jesse Ledoux. Um, I love his work. You know, of course, Art Chantry was a huge influence on in this area. Sure. You know, Frida Clements, who's also a friend of mine, is a great poster designer. And they're all really different. And um, But, you know, the screen-printed poster is, a, is um, alive and kicking. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, when, when music became, went digital, it lost its, um, it lost its art. And so yeah. bands make, you know, a certain amount of money through selling merchandise and they are looking for visuals to go with that. Sure. So... In some ways, it's like posters are doing really well right now. I'm not a, I'm not the kind of poster designer that uh, you know does a poster and then sells it online. I mean, I've sold a few here and there, but mm-hmm. I never got into it thinking that my work was collectible or doing it for the collector. Sure. Um, I've I've always approached it from more like. It was supposed to be, it was meant to be on the street or it was meant to be seen in a cafe. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I tend to work big, um, big shapes, big color, easy to read type. And mm-hmm. I don't do very much detailed work. So like my friend Frida, she's very detailed in how she works and it's really lovely and it's beautiful. But I just approach it from like such a different place. Cool. We'll definitely look up. Uh, each of those designers and have links to them in the show notes. You should definitely have jet, both of them you should have on your show. Well, yeah, those would be great. If you'd uh, like to make the intro, we'll get them on here. You and Frida. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. It's, what do you think you're most obsessed with when it comes to design? What am I most obsessed with? You know, I'm pro I, I'm sure I am obsessed, but well, like, okay. So right now I have, I have a poster that I've done for 21 years. So every year I do a poster for it's uh, the neighborhood artwork. Um, and <clears throat> last week they suffered a dev- devastating loss. There was a natural gas leak and oh. it destroyed three businesses and it's businesses that I frequent that I was just, you know, there a few, a few days ago. And it also did, you know, damaged when this gas leak happened, it also blew out a bunch of windows up and down the street. And um, so a lot of businesses are 
were affected. And they're all small businesses. This didn't happen to like a Starbucks or a McDonald's. Mm -hmm. They're all like mom and pop, you know, small coffee shops, small little restaurants, small bookstores, tattoo parlors, that kind of thing. And I guess when I think of what I'm obsessed with, it would be the fact that I'm going to try to do this right. Like I, I love this neighborhood. I love the businesses that are here. Mm-hmm. Feel really bad about what happened. And so I, I put this self-imposed pressure on myself to kind of make it better than when I made it the year before. Sure. And it's scary because <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't often, I don't often feel like I do, but like this year, I thought last year being the 20th anniversary of this art walk was a lot of pressure. And now I feel even more because I'm so sad about what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so st- I would say that my obsession is about um, getting it right as far as, you know, making sure that I'm creating something that is reflecting the community and also makes my client happy. Sometimes I'm hoping it makes them money. Um, just yeah. making sure I'm doing the right thing. And so I'm not, I mean, I'm obsessed with like little typographic details. And, you know, I just had a brochure come back where I'm like, Friday, I'll be making a press check. And I haven't done a press check in years. And so I can't remember the last time I actually printed something, but where, where I was actually on the press check. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like looking at the type going, oh my God, the rag here looks so terrible or I should fix that. <laughs> but those little things, you know, are not the big picture. So I, I'm more concerned about, am I doing the right thing with, with my design and with my work? And am I, and I, you know, is it, is it just more landfill that I'm creating Mm -hmm. or is it going to be something that, you know, can, I don't know, hopefully either change someone's opinion or get, or, you know, not end up in the instant recycle bin, I guess is what, you know, that's my, that's always my concern with my work. That's cool. So what happens when you get in a rough spot, you get down on yourself or, you know, project didn't go like you wanted or, you know, or you're just getting stuck for ideas. What, what do you do? Well, you know, I, have, I have some real, I have some big failures. You just, you'll never see them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all have them. Uh, well, you know, I, I don't, I can't remember the last time I really like did something where I really felt like I messed up. I mean, there have been a few, you know, times where I'm like, this, we aren't the right fit for this client or we can't, we can no longer work with this client for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when it happens, you just have to be forgiving, I guess. One nice thing about being, you know, now that we're, we're heading into our 29th year, I feel like I've been doing this for so long and I've seen all kinds of things happen. And I just know that if I bomb on something that it hopefully won't happen again in exactly that same way. Yeah. Hopefully I learned from it. I understand now you're kind of splitting your time between doing modern dog and, and teaching. So I'm, I'm sure that's a lot of fun working with student designers. I'm curious what you feel like the best piece of advice that you have to pass on to design students is. Well, I mean, I have a lot of advice and there is nothing like, you know, mind blowing, but, um, you know, stuff like don't ever give up and, you know, someone, if you may not, it's okay. Well, actually I do have one that I really love. Um, I love to tell students that 
because a lot of them feel really overwhelmed by technology. And I'm like living proof that you don't have to be the master of technology to do good work. Because, right. yeah. <laughs> because I am not the master of like, my favorite program is Illustrator, but I probably only know like 20% of what Illustrator is capable of doing. And, and I think that's enough. Like you just, it's overwhelming to think like, oh, I got to do WordPress and I got to know how to do HTML and I've got to, you know, and I've got to be good at logos and book design. No, you don't. You can just pick one or two things and be really good at that. And that can be enough. So um, I try to encourage students, if I see that they're you know, like, for example, I really don't like doing websites. I do a lot of them. Don't ask me why. <laughs> They're like my least favorite <laughs> thing to do. I, I heard somebody describe the Internet as like a big directory and that everything's moving to apps, which I'm so excited about because I like apps and yeah. I like design and the functionality of apps. Mm-hmm. But I can't stand websites. I, I don't know. There's like a big difference for me between, you know, designing a website and designing an app. And I just, when I see like a student and if I can tell that they really don't love something, like somebody may not love doing logos or they mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they hate posters or they don't like, you know, if they don't like working at a large scale, that, that kind of thing, they're really into details and they much prefer designing books, for example. I think that's totally great. I mean, I don't think you don't have to be in school and you don't have to be this person who does everything. And a lot of design schools right now are kind of pushing that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, hey, you can have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So they get a taste of everything. And I think that's great. But at the same time, I I just don't think you have to, like, love it. You don't have to fake it. Sure. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Maybe you go work somewhere where you have to do a little bit of this or that. And you don't have to love those either. But, right. you know, I, I think really as a, as a young designer, you want to find a place where you're going to build the kind of work that you want to do. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, I'm not, you know, I'd, I also would advise students not to show like a portfolio of just posters because <laughs> even yeah. though we love them, um, we don't make our money from them. And if I saw anybody who was just sort of obsessed with one thing only, I would be very nervous about, you know, how they would fit in or taking that person in uh, as an intern and thinking, I don't have a steady diet. You know, if I'm going to have a po- poster is going to come in first off, I want to do it. Or, or right. <laughs> right. But I would just, I think it's good to have, you know, a few things that you feel like you're really into. And it ultimately, you know, I, if somebody was really into just doing logos, I mean, I think of a lot of really great logo designers like Lance Wyman. He's been doing it, yeah. you know, for a long, long time and he's really, really good at it. And I mean, he does other things too, but we primarily know him as a, a logo designer, an icon designer. Mm-hmm. And he's great. He's really inspirational. Yeah, we'll definitely link up to his stuff in the show notes too. We got to see him speak at the uh, brand new conference a few years ago. He was just incredible. Yeah. yeah, he came to Seattle too, and he was just so great. I think I heard a rumor that he was the keynote speaker for TypeCon this summer in Seattle. Oh, cool. I need to go back and look at that, but I, th- I think that's who they're bringing back. Oh, very cool. Yeah. What do you think you'll be doing 10 years from now? Well, hopefully I'm doing exactly what I'm doing right now, which is um, you know, I, there are a few projects that I still really want to do, um, which one of them is a stamp design. Um, and I hope that in my lifetime, I'll get a chance to do that. But, uh, you know, I, I do probably right now, my company is a part-time 
business. So my partner and I work it just part-time with a few projects a year. Mm-hmm. I've got like five projects right now, which is sort of unusual. But um, I consider myself primarily, um, you know, a design instructor. And, you know, hopefully I'll still be teaching and I'll still be doing work. So, yeah, I can't imagine doing anything else. Very cool. So one of the other projects that you told me a little bit about was the the cover you got to do for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Can you tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, so that's with a client that uh, my company's worked with for probably at least 10 years, I think maybe a little bit longer. They primarily do releases of music, uh, older music, like the English Beat, um, and what else are we doing for them? Of course, my mind is going blank right now. Uh, like Mott the Hoople. I mean, I, I don't know if these are bands you, you've heard of before, but, and they also do re-releases of um, uh, movies. And so the 1992 movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, it's coming out on Blu-ray. And so they asked uh, if Modern Dog would do the cover. Um, and they had a very specific idea about what they wanted that illustration to look like. And I actually worked with an intern on it. And so I still take a lot of interns Mm -hmm. through Modern Dog, but, um, and, you know, I'm really happy with how that turned out. So hopefully in six months when it's on the shelf, you know, it'll look as good as I think it, it did when I handed off the artwork. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but they're a great client. I really, we really love working with them. Mm -hmm. Just, they're really fun and they give really great feedback. So it's a really good relationship with the client. So tell me, does the cover design revolve around coffees for closers? I love that line. Uh, <laughs> it's actually the it's the brass balls scene. Okay, he brings out the brass balls. <laughs> so it's an illustration of you know Alec Baldwin holding the brass balls, and yeah, it's like <laughs> iconic scene. Cool. Well, I appreciate you spending so much time chatting with me today, and as we're Wrapping up, I wonder um, where where can folks find you online and check out some of your work. Well, I Modern Dog has a site that I have not updated in about five, four or five years, but that site is still up. It's moderndog.com. We are in the process of redesigning it. Um, Modern Dog has a Facebook page, which actually tends to stay a little bit more current. Mm-hmm. And then we are on Twitter only because it's linked up to the Facebook page. And okay. I don't think we, we don't have Instagram, so we should. Cool. It's just too many things to keep track of, but yeah. <laughs> Facebook, uh, the website, and then also robinraid.com is where you can find my posters. Oh, very cool. I didn't know about that one. We'll link up to all those in the show notes. Okay, great. Very cool. Well, Robin, thank you so much for taking time with us today. Hey, you're welcome. And thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, guys, that is show number 12 in the books. That's a dozen episodes already. Thank you so much for all of the support. Thank you to everyone who's subscribed. Thank you for all of the reviews that we've gotten on iTunes. We could always use reviews and feedback. And don't forget to let us know who you'd like to hear us interview next. Remember, we're looking for designers of all types. So if you have design in your title, maybe I'd like to talk to you. You can hit us up on Twitter at Obsessed Show, at Josh Miles, and ObsessedShow.com. We'll catch you next time. Thanks. Obsessed Show is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located 13 floors above Monument Circle 
in the heart of downtown Indianapolis. Check us out online at milesherndon.com. And thank you so much to our friend Cassie Joe for providing her song, Matchbox Girl, that you're hearing right now and at the intro of our podcast. 